If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Drimple. Are you doing it on purpose? I'm not. <laughs> that was that was absolutely up to the minute. I came it straight wasn't. in there without a pause, without even a hesitation. The thing is, William, people are sending <laughs> us mail now. Dear Anita, in brackets, pause, and William. <laughs> most unjust, most you unjust. You are making no one, it a thing. No one is, is more awake than me on this one. Anyway. When you're awake, it's, I think you've just... Anyway... We're here, and we're delighted to be here, and we are, um, can I just say, absolutely overwhelmed, the pair of us, with the response, particularly to last uh, podcast with David Orsuga, um, because, you know, you have been writing in your hundreds. It has been, it has been rather amazing. He was he so, was so good. good. Oh, mm. we, we were both of us very anxious how we were going to pitch last week's one, because it was absolutely at the, the centre of what we're trying to do at this mm. podcast, and yet it's very difficult to reconcile these two diverging worlds. And, and David did it like a, a ballet dancer dancing Swan Lake through the middle of a minefield, I thought. I thought he was extraordinary. Yeah, and, and you know, and people have very much responded. I mean, I'll tell you what, you know, that you're never going to please everybody and that we, we know and we're prepared for that. But uh, we weren't prepared for just the sheer volume of, of love and affection that came for last week's. Um, this one here, let me just read a few of the, the messages that have come through. And thank you so much. And we are going through everything. William and I read everything that you send. And so we're very grateful. And I know a lot of you are sending suggestions for future podcasts. But Peter Bale um, speaks for many when he said, uh, I, I was appalled to listen to your superb Empire podcast. Uh, but a pause because I heard the historian um, David Onosuga now needs a bodyguard. Empire is excellent and it is informative. Uh, another one here, this is fascinating and sometimes disturbing listening um, in a time that sees devoid of intelligent and critical conversation. I wish it had been twice as long, says Andrew uh, McNelly-Jones. Um, we have found... Um, Another one here. Oh, well, you were going all over the world. Um, I don't know whether you've seen the geographic spread of this, William, but uh, Simon Payne and Tracy Campbell are both listening in Australia. Simon says, it was a really uh, excellent podcast. As an Australian, I had no idea there'd been a recent Chogham, let alone that our Prime Minister hadn't attended. And I don't recall it being mentioned at all, which rather supports David's point. Uh, and this one here, Tracy Campbell saying, really great episode as usual. I just wanted to point out that the Australian Prime Minister is pushing for Indigenous recognition in our constitution before the Republic question. The Prime Minister created an Assistant Minister for the Republic this term. It will happen! Exclamation mark. Uh, we do have some people who didn't like it, though. Shall we address that as well, William? Uh, so let me just uh, see this one here. It says, why, oh, why are you again talking Britain down? Are you ever going to talk about other empires because they did terrible things too? And that one is from Jonathan Berwick. What do we say to that? Well, the short answer is we are going to do other empires too, and that's the, the point of this of this podcast. But at the moment, we're talking about the British and India, and I think it's very important we do so. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, just, just to echo that, I know a lot of you are, are, are wanting us to go into different territories, and we will. Um, but first of all, we've been promising you that we would talk about Gandhi, and that 
moment has now come. Uh, Gandhi, who is just such an enormous figure um, in the pantheon, if you like, of of, of exports uh, from the subcontinent. I, I, I think there is there are very few people on planet Earth who have as much face recognition. He's everywhere in India. We talked about how um, one of the reasons I think that so many people are so shaken by the death of the queen was that uh, her face is on every uh, on every currency note and on every stamp. Well, the same is true of Gandhi in India. He is the father of the nation. He's on every rupee. Every city has a Mahatma Gandhi road. Uh, he's absolutely the background of everyone's life there. But certainly the way that Indian politics is going at the moment, uh, there is definitely a rediscovery of those who did not embrace nonviolence, mm. like Gandhi did. Uh, and you mentioned uh, last week, Anita, um, Subhas Chandra Bose, mm. uh, who, uh, whose statue has just gone up in the center of Delhi. Uh, and he was uh, appalled by uh, Gandhi's approach of nonviolence. And he is now, in a sense, the, the freedom fighter with whom the current government of, of Narendra Modi most identifies. Well, and that, that's also, you know, sort of germane to the conversation that we were having with David Olashuga. And I think he put it really well, which is, you know, whatever Britain wants to think about the way in which the world regards it, it's not a monologue. I think that's the way he put it. He said it's a dialogue, except, you know, one side hasn't been listening to the other. And if you wanted any more articulate or, uh, you know, loud um, voicing of, of where the current Indian establishment stands in this relationship. I think a lot of papers have picked up on what we were talking about in the last podcast, William, about Modi wanting to distance himself from the colonial past and talking about it, renaming things that once had British names, taking down things that have British connections. And there are certain issues which are swirling around now, the um, death of, of Queen Elizabeth and uh, the accession of King Charles III. And predictably, and we said this, didn't we, last week, one of those things that comes up time and again when you talk about the British royal family and its relationship with India is the Kohenor diamond. Now, how many times has your phone rung in the last week from people wanting you to talk about Kohenor? Because I know, I mean, it, it has gone slightly crazy on, on my telephone and in my emails. It has. It's become a major issue. It's been trending on Indian Twitter every day uh, since the Queen died. And uh, I think a lot of people in India expect that the Kohenor is coming back imminently. But, but at the moment, as things stand, it is not. It is sitting, waiting in the Queen Consort's crown, which means conceivably, at a time of coronation, it will be on Camilla's head. And there will be yet another round of uh, of requests for it back from India. Mm, mm. Um, again, it's part of this this very different view. Um, I don't think people in in Britain even are aware that it's a particularly contentious thing. Uh, most people here, if they've heard of the Kohinoor at all, they've probably heard of it. Uh, you know, it's the name of the local Indian restaurant, or it's the name of a brand of pencil. Uh, they're vaguely aware that there is a Kohinoor diamond, uh, but that it's a huge bone of issue between uh, India and Britain. And that Indians passionately want it back. I don't think that's widely known here. No, I, don't, I think, I mean, I, I've described it um, on numerous occasions as a diplomatic grenade. Um, I think you'd agree that's what it is. I mean, to see that flaunted it before the world's eyes is going to be difficult for many Indians to see. It's the thing that brought us professionally first together. We worked uh, on this book on the Kohenor, and I think it's something which we're definitely going to do a podcast on imminently. Uh, it, it's clearly a moment to, to start talking about it again. We will. We will do that. But let's let's talk about Gandhi, because that's why we're here this week. Um, so, you know, the, the, it's, it's the Ben Kingsley version that most people know here, in a loincloth, 
you know, sort of like Canute against the waves or David and Goliath, very much how the Attenborough version presents it. But this is a complicated man and it's a human being that we're talking about at the end of the day. Let's just talk about his origins because um, where did his story start? He was born 2nd of October, 1869. He was born into a Gujarati Hindu family in a place called Porbandar. Um, and what, what kind of background did he have? Was he rich? Was he poor? What was his background, William? He was a middle-class boy who managed to make it to London to study law in 1888, um, following a rather unremarkable childhood uh, in Gujarat. Um, and some of his biographers maintain that he had actually very little formal knowledge of Hinduism beyond the rituals taught to him as a child before he arrived in London. And being a strict vegetarian, he found himself um, ushered into this world of uh, Edwardian spiritualism and uh, Edwardian Orientalism that associated the vegetarian uh, with vegetarian restaurants in London at that time, and with a kind of strange world of of sort of Edwardian cranks and idealists and uh, table tappers, particularly the Theosophists and mm. people like Annie Besant and Madame Blavatsky. Madame Blavatsky, who claimed to receive instruction in occult knowledge from Himalayan masters and radiant astral figures, and Mahatmas. The word Mahatma is first brought into prominence by Madame Blavatsky, uh, and she believed that they were immortal beings who, though principally resident in Tibet, had materialized here and were the authors of Madame Blavatsky's books. Right, right. So so it's, it's a very unorthodox world that Gandhi enters into in, into London. But, but sort of, and this is the complexity of the man, because yes, that is, you know, and Mahatma, by the way, just for those of you who... who, who great soul. Don't know, great soul, is it translates exactly as a great soul. But it's not a traditional Hindu uh, uh, appellation. It's one that comes to Gandhi through the very odd source of Madame Blavatsky. So there is that which is um, unconventional. There's the sort mm. of the theosophists and the, the table tappers, as you say, also, I mean, I must say, he was greatly affected when he came to Britain by looking at the way the suffragettes um, protested. So the suffragettes, who were involved in non-cooperation, um, blockading roads, and then using the hunger strike, greatly affected Gandhi. And he writes about it at length, about how these women who are willing to starve their bodies for a cause has inspired him. And I don't think that it is... I mean, it is no coincidence that that is his one of the biggest weapons in his arsenal later on when he becomes the Gandhi of the loincloth. But before the, we, we, we talk about that, um, you know, you, you say that it, there's this very unconventional side, and you're quite right, but there's also this incredibly conservative conventional side, because let's not forget, at the age of 13, he was married off an arranged marriage to 14-year-old Kusturbabai, who, you know, again, they were, they were children at the time of their marriage. And it was a very conservative, from the outward look, at least, it looked terribly conservative. And I think before he went to London, he was famously uh, made promise by his mother that he would abstain completely from meat, alcohol, and women. Mm -hmm. I think you have in Gandhi all these very different worlds meeting. On the other hand, remember, of course, he's also studying law in London. So as as well as kind of mixing with 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 uh, uh, Edwardian spiritualists and so on, and 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 meeting all sorts of strange people in London vegetarian restaurants, he's also very much hanging out in the law courts and and learning law. and And you see all these different elements coming together in this in this man. In a, in a way that an earlier generation of Indians, you know, the yeah. world, the world we were talking about, we were talking about the East India Company, 
the world of uh, uh, of Ghalib and the Mughal court, the world of uh, uh, of Maratha merchants and so on, uh, they would not have had access to any of these diverse influence which which are forming Gandhi. This is very much a new world, uh, and Gandhi is is forming the world around him. Mm. At the age of twenty two, he's called to the bar in London. And then he is sort of thinking that he's going to go back to India. He's going to practice in India. That's where his life is. But it is actually a legal case that diverts his journey. Uh, and instead, it's uh, he's, he's called to represent a merchant in South Africa. And that is how the South African chapter of his life begins, which is so fascinating, but is so often forgotten and glossed over. He's just a little 23-year-old sort of slip of a, a man. If you look at him, he's very, he's like a little sparrow, isn't he, William? And he's so, he's such a small bone. He actually, you know, his face reminds me of those books of um, young Kafka, you know, <laughs> sort of hot, sort of very intense eyed, um, gaunt looking, you know, that sort of very neatly parted hair. That's a very um, interesting comparison and, and same sort of period of history too. Yeah. yeah. So he goes off to, to South Africa and he goes and he sort of thinks he's going to do this this great legal case. He's going to, to be working for this merchant. But then something happens to him almost immediately after he arrives in South Africa. He is discriminated against because of the colour of his skin. And it's a very Rosa Parks type story. He's not allowed to sit with European passengers on a stagecoach. And then when he refuses to get up and move... He's taken by the guard and beaten and thrown into the gutter. Um, and, and this is sort of a, a, an awakening in him of, I, I don't know what it is that sets him apart here from, from many people, most people, maybe even me. And I don't know about you, but, you know, we get knocked down. Do we necessarily, we, we probably get up again, but then do we think, right, I'm going to change all of this root and branch? And then, of course, there's the famous incident uh, in Peter Maritzburg when he's thrown off a train by a conductor. Um, and I've actually been to that waiting room uh, in Peter Maritzburg in South Africa, uh, where he where he got uh, thrown out of and thrown out into, and and he then fights very hard for the rights specifically of the Indian community in South Africa. Mm. But he's also uh, in touch with the Theosophists um, once he moves to South Africa, and he's drawn into the world of something called the Esoteric Christian Union, um, which. It, to our ears, sounds as dotty as anything that was existing in Edwardian London. It's a sect founded by somebody called Edward Maitland and his collaborator Anna Kingsford. They, through their various spiritual spiritualisms and table tilting, uh, they discovered that they were respectively the reincarnation of Saint John the Evangelist and Saint Mary Magdalene. Of course, um, and and you know, to our ears, this mm. sounds completely dotty. But according to Gandhi's faithful secretary. Uh, Piri Lal Naya, uh, their writings had, he said, a profound and specific and lasting influence on Gandhi's mm. thought. So there he is. He's in He's in South Africa. He's got some slightly um, interesting friends, but he also does some really, uh, again, surprising things. So the Boer War is going on. And in 1900, Gandhi volunteers to be a stretcher bearer in the Natal Indian Ambulance Corps. So he, he has at this point, still got this idea that I won't fight, but he doesn't have this idea that I won't take part in a war. He wholeheartedly takes part as somebody who goes to the front line and who helps the British war effort. Again, this is, I think, something that would be very surprising uh, to people that haven't read his biography, that, that he was initially a great believer in 
the ju- in the justice of the British Empire, and mm. and this is something that survives right up until the First World War, and he becomes a major uh, drum beater. Uh, for for British recruitment in the First World War, mm. and, and we'll come to that. But just just still in South Africa, because these these are the years that people often skip over, but they are so formative. I think in in the man he becomes uh, in 1906. So he's been this you know more loyal than the king subject who who is putting his sort of body on the line uh, to to bring home broken British soldiers from the front line, if you like. So in 1906, the Transvaal brings out these laws which are racist. I mean, there's no other way of putting it, where Indians and Chinese will have to carry pass cards, which they will have to produce every time a police officer stops them in the street and demands them. And if they don't, they can get beaten up or arrested. And a police officer has every right to burst into the homes of these people, overturning everything, dragging them out, again, demanding to see these pass cards. And this is an absolute affront, particularly to conservative Indians who are living in South Africa, who think their homes are sacred and their women should not be touched. So that actually lights a fire under Gandhi. And and William, that is the start of something we then recognise later in his life, right? Absolutely. This is where he, he develops the beginnings of what will become Satyagraha, truth force or devotion to truth, uh, which, as you say, develops in many ways the forms of non-violent resistance employed by the suffragettes uh, in Britain. But it also gives it a more sort of spiritual Backing. It's, the suffragettes were, were not uh, looking to religion or to spirituality in their protests. Gandhi ties always uh, his political protest to, um, to to a form of spirituality, and in in that sense, he's he's marrying the suffragettes with the theosophists. Mm. Actually, it should be said. Sort of later on, he divorces the suffragettes. He 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 really repudiates them when they start using violence. When they start breaking windows and when they start setting fire to pillar boxes he says he wants nothing more to do with them anyway he starts to say right we don't want to carry these cards anymore we're not going to carry these cards anymore and he somehow manages to inspire a great number of indian people to just refuse just to say no and they set fire to their pass cards and they are arrested and they are beaten and he comes sort of you know toe to toe with Jan Smuts, you know, there, there isn't enough time in just this one podcast to talk about that particular um, relationship, but it is a really fascinating one. It is one of attrition and one of, you know, on Smuts' side anyway, just complete frustration at Gandhi. But but it ends with a, almost a, a grudging respect at first and then a real warm respect, I think, because, you know, he manages to get those past laws changed, Gandhi does. And when he does do this, you know, you sort of think, okay, here's a life in South Africa that's beckoning. But he has a call from an Indian called Gopal Krishna Gokhale, who is sort of a mild-mannered member of the Indian National Congress, a, a nascent political organisation that is agitating for not freedom from British rule, but some more control to be wrested away for Indian people in their own country. And Gokhale is really enchanted with the way in which Gandhi has stood up against these South African racist past laws without using violence and wants him to come to India where he thinks it can be used. What's really lovely about the end of this story in South Africa, the South African chapter, is that Jan Smuts, when he says, he calls him to, to see him and to say, right, you're off then. Good. Uh, and uh, Gandhi presents him with a pair of handmade sandals, 
and says, look, I've made these with my own hands. They're for you. And I'm smuts at the time. Imagine, imagine his confusion. You know, this is, this is, Wearing knee-led leather boots and a bit yeah. of military jodhpurs. Yeah. In, his, in his jodhpurs. And he's presented with these sort of, you know, beautifully handmade, but very sort of crude leather sandals. And he accepts them. But what I find really very, very touching is the way in which... Um, Smuts returns those sandals decades later. So this is the, uh, the, in, the it's called The Essential Gandhi by Louis Fisher, who's a, a journalist who followed in, and interviewed Gandhi extensively, I think in the 40s. But Fisher says, you know, his work in South Africa was finished. Gandhi left South Africa, but before he departed, he sent General Smuts a pair of sandals as a gift. And Smuts wore the sandals every summer at his farm and then returned the sandals to Gandhi on Gandhi's 70th birthday. Smuts remarked, I have worn these sandals for many a summer, even though I may feel that I'm not worthy to stand in the shoes of so great a man. It was my fate to be the antagonist of a man for whom, even then, I had the highest respect. I never heard that story. Goodness, I've never heard that. If you know Smuts... And, you know, many of you listening to this podcast will know Smuts. That is an extraordinary thing. I mean, it's in the Fisher biography. Um, but there we are. It's a nice story. But anyway, look, to take up the reins of this story, as Gandhi returns to India, we have an, an extraordinary guest, don't we, William? Tell us about our guest today. We have the great Ramachandra Guha, who is not only um, the greatest living biographer of Gandhi, but arguably uh, the greatest chronicler uh, of the history of post-independence India. Uh, his, uh, his great India after Gandhi is regarded universally as the most important text on the subject. It's studied and read all over the world. And he is also an extraordinarily influential political commentator, 2.2 million uh, Twitter followers, which I don't think is uh, many of his historian competitors anywhere in the world would uh, would even begin to be able to match. And uh, it's, more, it's he, he's a kind of the rock star uh, mm. of Indian history. And you can find out why he's such a superstar after this break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. So a very, very warm welcome from India, uh, from Bangalore to Professor Ramachandra Gua. Thank you very much for spending the time to speak to us. Um, Thank you. When people say Gandhi here in Britain, they often ju- can't get past Ben Kingsley. I mean, that is that is the knowledge that they have. Uh, how much is the, the Kingsley Gandhi um, a help or a hindrance to you when you go out and you talk about the man himself? So, uh, Arita, Kingsley acted wonderfully. I mean, he was a standout role in that film. And that film uh, itself played an important role in bringing Gandhi back into the conversation. So I'm grateful for that film and for Kingsley for making it so memorable. Uh, However, the film itself is more than 40 years old, exactly 40 years old this year, came out in 1982. So younger people haven't really seen it. Some of them may have seen it in school. Uh, So they have very mixed perceptions of Gandhi. And Maybe you can talk about it later, but in India today, there's a whole amount of uh, historical revisionism about Gandhi. Uh, not so much in academic circles, but in WhatsApp history circles. <laughs> yes. And he's often accused of not doing enough or of doing the wrong things. Uh, so uh, clearly, when you take someone as significant as Gandhi, you have to wade through all kinds of preconceptions. I mean, I've written biographies before. Uh, as Willie knows, but those were of interesting, eccentric, relatively minor figures, uh, where you don't have this problem, that people have uh, preconceived notions often firmly held of what they think Gandhi believed in and what he was all about. So you have to cut through the uh, the, 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 you know, the underbrush. Really, no, I mean, uh, that, that will be fascinating and, and um, I think hard to believe for, for British audiences, that there actually is a two-track approach to Gandhi, one here in Britain, which is something akin to reverence, and Where statues then, for the first time are being put up to Put Gandhi. up in London. I mean, we have one in Tavistock Square to Gandhi, oh, to Gandhi in Westminster, I beg your pardon. And yes. then in India, where it is unfashionable these days to say you yes. respect and love Gandhi. In, yeah. I, mean, I read something, I don't know whether you read it in the papers, from a very renowned Indian publisher we know very well, who said history has become sexy under the BJP because now we can talk about um, men who will not mean anything here, uh, men like Savarka or Bose, people who were involved in violent yes, um, yes, yes. Uh, struggle against British rule. But Gandhi's style of struggle is not popular in India these days. That's true. So, you know, so there are two reasons why there's this uh, revisionism about Gandhi. One is under the BJP, there's an exaltation of masculinity and masculinity involves violence. Non-violence is seen as feminine. Right? That's one reason. And people like Bose and Savarkar particularly uh, are seen as embodying that aggressive masculinity, which uh, their proponents believe would have got out the British Empire, ended the British Empire quicker, even if in a more bloody way, quicker. The second reason this is revisionism of Gandhi is that Gandhi lived and died for Hindu-Muslim harmony. So Gandhi felt Muslims were also Christians and Sikhs and Jains and Parsis were as responsible, reliable uh, citizens, bona fide citizens of India as Hindus, whereas the BJP and its allies think of India as a Hindu first country. 
And the fact that Gandhi not only preached tolerance and respect for Muslims, he was willing to go on fast for it, willing to sacrifice his life for interfaith harmony is something which Hindu radicals cannot abide. That's the second reason for their dislike. And yet it's a complicated relationship, isn't it? Because he's on the notes, he's, he's the, the father of the nation, so they can't quite disown him. But, they, uh, but we're seeing a lot more of Godse around. Yes, yes, absolutely. Because Godse killed him and according to the hardline uh, Hindu class follower, uh, he saved India further suffering by ending Gandhi's life. So he's on the notes, uh, but actually in a ruling party, uh, it's only Narendra Modi, the prime minister, who praises Gandhi. And I think, in my view, not really out of conviction or sincerity, but because he recognizes what you said, Anita, that in the rest of the world, Gandhi is admired. I mean, Gandhi is the only pan-Indian figure. You talked about um, you talked about the statue in Westminster, which is among thirteen or fourteen such people. I think this Churchill and uh, Millicent Fawcett, and uh, I think some of your generals and so on. But I had a British visitor come to Bangalore last week, who I hadn't seen for many years, a friend I hadn't seen from before COVID, and she said, "I have a present for you." And I said, "What's that?" She said, here is a five-pound coin minted for Gandhi. And it is the only coin minted for a non-British person. And kind of explanation of what Gandhi meant and so on. So I think Narendra Modi understands this, that he as prime minister can't openly debunk Gandhi. Whatever his party men think of Gandhi, whatever his voters, uh, however much his voters detest Gandhi. So it's a complicated business. Uh, and it's principally to do, I think, even more than violence, is principally to do with Gandhi's commitment to interfaith harmony and the equality of all citizens regardless of religion. I think that's what they really can't get. That's what they don't like about Gandhi. Well, I think actually we ought to then do a, a great service um, to the people listening and talk about the real man himself because there's been so much myth-making on both sides from those who, who love him and those who detest him. But right at the bottom of this is a real-life human being. What was it about this man that meant, because, you know, by all accounts, quite mild-mannered, uh, quite humble in the way he spoke and presented himself, certainly in, in later life. The three of us are all writers. He recognizes the word, uh, the power of the word, the written and printed word. So he starts newspapers in South Africa, which he carries on in India, which are printed not in, just in English, but in Hindi and Gujarati and Tamil and so on. So he, he, he understands that the message is to go across. He also appreciates the virtue of patience. So he comes back in 1915, but he takes several years to travel around India and to understand a country he's been away from for two decades before asserting himself as a, before putting himself forward as a candidate for the leadership of the freedom struggle. So then after the, of course, the fact that he was a prosperous lawyer, he sacrificed his profession to work with the people and so on. So there are many, many reasons. Do you think it was Gandhi who really made the Congress reach out from a kind of old boys club and, you know, returned Cambridge uh, and so on to, to a, 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 a nationwide movement that was talking to ordinary people? Very much so. So the Congress before him, you're absolutely right, Vinny. The Congress before him was composed of really brilliant and articulate people, but all men, all largely based in big cities like Bombay, Calcutta, Madras, Delhi, Lahore and all largely operating in English. So Gandhi made it vernacular and he made it a mass movement. He brought in workers and peasants and artisans and also women. You know, one of his uh, achievements uh, was to make women part of the Congress. And even uh, in 1925, Sarojini Naidu, at Gandhi's insistence, become, becomes president of the Congress party at a time 
but there was no question of a conservative or labor or liberal even M, you know a le a female leader so all of this i think is inclusive i've already talked about religion and his work in promoting hindu or muslim harmony but he also attacks untouchability which is a cornerstone of the hindu caste system and he says we have to stop discriminating against lower caste he says hindus who practice upper caste hindus who practice untouchability are the general dyers of hinduism what is wonderful and startling and and humbling about your work is that it is um almost um as if you're a pirate buccaneer going into uh, archives that nobody has touched before so the gandhi has written so much you've just said he did newspapers he did letters yes. there are how many volumes are his collected works 97 97, 97 <laughs> volumes. Yeah. But but what was always missing was the other side of the conversation. And that's right. what I think is really fascinating about what you've done is you've found the other half of those letters. Absolutely. And they, yeah. more than anything, show that this is a man who undergoes a real, I hate the word, it's so psycho nutty in this context, but he went on a journey. I mean, he really did go on a yes. on a journey. Um, first of all, being very pro-British, pro the war, asking men to sign up and fight for Britain during World War One, being the chief recruiting officer in many ways, to then standing up and saying, you know what, these people cannot be trusted and they need to get out. It wasn't the only journey because you've mentioned the, the caste system. It's People know that he had problems with Jinnah. People know that it was a very personal, visceral problem that he had with Jinnah. But he also had problems, and that is amplified in your work, with Ambedkar, yes. who was a father of the Dalit or uh, untouchable um, movement. Right. So, so can you speak to that a little bit and why nobody really talks about that very much? Yeah, so uh, uh, interestingly, since you started by mentioning Attenborough's film in which uh, King, uh, Kingsley played Gandhi, Jinnah is represented in the film uh, as a kind of caricature played by Alec Padamsi, the scheming wicked guy. Ambedkar is missing. And I think he's missing for cinematic reasons because it's easy in that kind of narrative to present Gandhi as the good guy and Jinnah as the bad guy. But Ambedkar complicates this story because he's as committed to the emancipation of the untouchables. He has a more radical plan for liberating them. Uh, he's a great scholar uh, and legal expert. He's completely self-made. Jinnah's a prosperous lawyer, so you can see him as a, you know, a rich man dabbling in politics. Ambedkar absolutely comes from the bottom up. And their debate is about um, uh, how quickly you should go in ending caste discrimination. Gandhi is growing slowly, incrementally, because he wants to take the upper caste Hindus along. Ambedkar wants to attack the system frontally. So he writes a famous pamphlet called Annihilation of Caste, which he says the only way to annihilate caste is to promote inter-caste marriage. And Gandhi is not prepared to do that at once. Mm. Uh, Gandhi also has a larger cause, which is freedom of India. But as Ambedkar says, what's the point of freeing India if the Congress party, which is dominated by Brahmins and and merchants comes to dominate us. We'll just exchange the British for a new set of rulers. So it's a debate and an argument of great poignancy. You know, uh, as, as a biographer, uh, I admire both men. I mean, I, I won't say whom I admire more, but their circumstances make necessarily make them rivals. Yeah, but but Baba Saab Ambedkar, as he's known in in India, I mean, was a massive figure in in the um in the the freedom struggle, and also father of the constitution. So those of you who don't know, who are listening and yeah. hearing this name for the very first time, he is a huge figure who has left a lasting imprint on what is now India. 
What is Gandhi's response to the massacre at Jallianwalabagh? Because this, 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 many people, the Nehru's, for example, have their views of the British Empire completely overturned by this heartless heartlessness and the bloodshed and the and the support for Dyer that's voiced in many quarters following the massacre. Gandhi is like that, with this difference that uh, so Tagore, for example, the great poet Rabindranath Tagore returns his knighthood. You know, he's the first Asian to win a Nobel Prize in literature. Is knighted by the British, has many close British friends, and then after Jalanwala Bagh, um, uh, you know, uh, returns his returns his knighthood. Uh, Gandhi has a similar kind of reaction, but he actually travels to the Punjab in uh, 1919-20. He uh, he travels to the Punjab and uh, uh, he meets people and he understands their suffering and he realizes it's not just a massacre. Uh, uh, it was not not just a one-off event that took place. Uh, in, in that garden outside the Golden Temple in Amritsar, that villagers are, uh, you know, there's punitive harassment of them, they're being sent to jail, uh, their fines levied on them for taxes they are allegedly not paid. So there's a real amount of discontent and that visit to the Punjab disabuses him of any loyalty to the Raj, you know, which he had before. So it's, it is very transformative in his understanding of empire for sure. And with, with Jinnak, if we could just... just... Talk about that really rancorous relationship for yeah, a very little interesting. longer, because you know some some people feel that if these two men could have and should have got along a lot better, both Gujaratis, both, both Gujarati, lawyers, both educated, they, I mean, they, in many yes. many sort of yes, worlds, they, they should have you know, been one could imagine them being allies on paper. But. You know, if it was a dating website, they too would have had a match. <laughs> I mean, but but in real life, is it really as mundane as these two personalities just didn't get on? There, there's one story um, of of Gandhi making a flippant comment about sort of Jinnah's doing an address in English and he says, oh, you should speak in Gujarati. And it's it's that. It, can it be the seeds of resentment are that banal that somebody said something to someone and then no. it just all spiraled? So I think Jinnah was Gandhi's senior in Indian public life. Uh, when Gandhi was a struggling lawyer in South Africa, Jinnah was already a member of the Imperial Council. Uh, he was an established lawyer. Uh, and uh, he sort of felt overshadowed by, Jinnah, by Gandhi. You know, when Gandhi comes in and captures the Congress Party during the non-cooperation movement, there's a famous session in, in Nagpur in 1920, where Jinnah gets up to make some criticisms of the non-cooperation campaign. And he's shouted down by Gandhi's supporters. And he walks away and takes a train and returns to Bombay. So there is an element of personal rivalry, uh, probably on both sides. But... I would not put too much into this. Back to the non-cooperation movement. So how does that unfold during the 1920s? So you, it's, I mean, it's the first real mass movement. Hundreds of thousands of people are arrested peacefully and of all kinds, you know. So lawyers, doctors, workers, artisans, farmers, uh, all caught arrest uh, across India. And as the movement is speaking, there's an act of violence where uh, nine policemen in a who are in a police station in a village in Uttar Pradesh in North India, are burnt alive by a nationalist bomb. And Gandhi's outraged by that and calls off the movement. So that is not enough, of course, for him uh, to uh, go. He goes to jail. He's arrested shortly after that. But the British Empire was on its knees. And it's really Gandhi's commitment to nonviolence because, and his horror of, horror of mob anger, that what would happen if Hindus and Muslims turned on each other? His... Reservations about violence were partly moral, but they were also partly tactical. You know, the conviction that if you take up arms to remove the oppressor, 
once freedom comes you will use the same arms to turn on your fellow countrymen so non cooperation movement which is a really major movement of protest in which hundreds of thousands of people are jailed including gandhi and nehru and bose and many other people is called off because of one solitary act of violence which gandhi felt besmirched the cause and the movement it's th- is that belief in in himself and his own voice which time and time again turns tides of violence and also political flow i mean his use of the hunger strike is extraordinary i mean you would think that actually one man saying i'm not going to eat until you put down your arms and sort yourselves out wouldn't make a difference in a baying mob but it did and and why did it so no, i think he had that kind of transformative power i mean again uh to use a word one does not like charisma you know uh and uh but in a moral cause i mean his most famous hunger fast which actually led to a cessation of violence were conducted in the last 6 months of his life in the aftermath of partition where you had this bloodshed in the flight of refugees and a million people died gandhi goes on fast in calcutta in september 1947 and stops the violence and then he goes to on fast in delhi in january 1948 two large cities full of anger and animal you know mobs seething with anger and animosity uh, a very large muslim minority in both cities and gandhi by the power is of example brings about peace i mean it's mm. quite extraordinary there are there are two or three other i mean epoch changing actions um which bring an empire one of the mightiest <laughs> empires the world has known to its knees and they are they're so um, improbable so the salt march that salt yes. could be such a political weapon um you will need to explain this to people here because it makes very little sense what actually happens what happens with the salt marches so uh, essentially in 1929 the congress met in lahore at the banks of the river ravi and decided that they wanted to launch a fresh strike for freedom and it was left to gandhi to devise the means and uh, you know uh, and uh, think up the tactics and gandhi goes back to his ashram and thinks of salt now salt is a commodity used by every indian but making it is the monop- is a monopoly of the raj so you can't make your own salt you have to buy it at an enhanced price paying a tax to the colonial state so gandhi says i'm going to make my own salt symbolically so that every indian will make their own salt and he marches from his ashram in amdavad and from there he marches to the sea it takes him 3 weeks he has 78 companions and the viceroy is mystified i mean lord irwin is mystified he said what is this mad old man doing supposing I mean, as a counterfactual, if Lord Irwin had arrested Gandhi as soon as he left the ashram, that would have been the end of the story. We would not be discussing the salt march today. But he thinks this guy is crazy and let him go. And he marches day by day, and more and more reporters come to cover him, including American reporters. And I think the American reporting of the salt march is very significant in making Gandhi a global figure, because America is emerging as a large economic power. uh you know time magazine uh is just about becoming hugely popular and actually makes gandhi man of the year in that year 1930 and of course america uh has a close kinship with britain so american public opinion influences british opinion and these reporters come and then he goes to the sea and breaks the salt law and simultaneously in many different parts of india other people break the salt law so it's symbolically it's hugely significant because it shows the empire as unfeeling greedy monopolistic 
uh, and uh, not really, not even allowing an ordinary Indian to have salt in his or her diet. So it's, I mean, it's as a as as a piece of political theatre, it's it's quite remarkable. But and 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 does is he aware of all this? Because as as you're right, I mean, it's, the revolution will be televised. This is one of the first episodes where you have photographers on the scene, people recording this in in real time, and then reporting it to the rest of the world. Is he that canny that he knows? That, you know, by cultivating these relationships with people at his ashram, by taking them along to a place where he knows he's going to have lattes broken on his head, that, that this is actually, this is his power. I think he does. But I think he knew the power. He always knew the power of publicity in the press. There's no question. And of messaging, of uh, reaching out, of answering letters from correspondents, of, uh, you know, uh, and, and so on, yeah. I think I read somewhere that you said he wrote 100 letters a day or 90 letters a day or something. Sometimes more than that. He had a fantastic secretary with him. I mean, he had an extraordinary, he had, I mean, uh, he had a secretary, Mahadev Desai, who was a scholar in many languages and who really, whose role in the Indian freedom struggle and in Gandhi's life is really underappreciated. Can, can we talk about some of those people who actually are in Gandhi's life before we get to um, the 40s, which I think, again, is another um pivotal moment in, in, in Gandhi's ascendancy. But let's just talk about, so he's married. He's married at a very, very young age yes. to Kasturba Babai. I mean, he's what, 13 and she's even younger when they get married. And she's incredibly loyal, but a sort of almost silent figure in, in the background, but always supportive. But he has passion as well. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's not, he may dress like an ascetic, but he has a fiery heart. And you see that because he writes these beautiful love letters to another yeah. revolutionary woman uh, yes. who I think is fabulous and very underwritten about, Sarala Devi Chaudhrani, who is also married. Now, just no, people don't know about this at all, that there is a romantic life with Gandhi. Yes, it's not, I mean, it's not the image. It is not, it, it's not. It wasn't in ben Attenborough. Ben Kingsley doesn't do that. Ben Kingsley doesn't write to any women. No, but so tell us, what is this relationship? Because it is, it's very important and it tells us a little bit about his internal life as well. Well, first of all, it's, it is very moving and, and as you say, quite charged, you know, charged with love and passion and so on. Because in 1919, the massacre happens. That winter, Gandhi goes to look at what's happening in the Punjab. And he stays at the home of Zarla Devi, who lives in Lahore, whose husband is actually in jail. So Gandhi and this, uh, you know, this writer, poet, activist are, you know, just chatting together and getting to know each other. And essentially, they fall in love. And over the next year, year and a half, they exchange these incredibly passionate letters. And Gandhi calls her, my spiritual wife. And which is a very interesting and intriguing phrase, my spiritual wife, which means I can emotionally and intellectually and otherwise bond with her, but I've taken a vow of celibacy, so I can't go any further. And I'm already married to Kasturba. But then he, he is told by his colleagues that this relationship will hurt the freedom struggle. It's embarrassing for you to devote so much of your time and attention to this friendship when you have a larger cause, which is freeing India from British colonial rule. But Later on, Gandhi, many years later, Gandhi talks without mentioning uh, Sarah Devi. He says, I nearly fell, which means I nearly, you know, flipped. That is the word he means. Not mm. fell. You know, like, perhaps he was, so he was very enchanted by her. She was she was amazing. I mean, I, I'm I'm yeah. complete. I'm in love with her. Um, she is yeah. uh, extra. She would in in Lahore. She would train men to fight. You know, she would she would she would have these underground little um, lessons where she would give them sticks or whatever and drill them in fighting martial arts. I'll tell you something which will interest you because I know your 
you know, you're married to a writer on science. Uh, she was she was Tagore's niece. And she came from a family of writers and poets. She said, I'm going to study science. So she was the first female graduate in science in Calcutta University. I did not know that. Yeah. That's amazing. Okay. It kind of conservative, patriarchal, uh, uh, late 19th century uh, uh, Begol. She said, I'm going to study science. Then the mother says, I want to marry you off. She said, sorry, I'm going to Mysore to teach. And I'll find my own partner and I'll teach science in Mysore. You know, and then the mother is dying and on her deathbed says, please get married. So then she has an intercaste marriage with a Punjabi lawyer and moves there. I mean, she writes, uh, Tagore really likes her. You know, he thinks of her as, in a sense, a literary heir because of her poetry. So yeah, and in many ways, because of the kind of... Uh, uh, her exuberance, her personality, her intelligence, her charm. You could see of her as very different from Kasturba, who's a quiet, you know, uh, uncharismatic homemaker. I mean, I mean, I mean, what what else could she be? Or I mean, in a relationship with Gandhi, it's yeah, very hard exactly. not to be eclipsed. What else? Yeah. What else can you do? Against his image, you know, we we uh, the Attenborough image is, is very much of the saintly figure, but Gandhi also remains throughout his life. You know, the lawyer is still there beneath the dhoti, a ruthlessly sharp negotiator and a, and a brilliant mind. Could you talk a yeah. little about that? Yeah, I think, I think he's obviously very, uh, he's very smart politically, intellectually, in terms of policy. But there's one aspect of his which I think is often ignored when we talk about his, um, his, his, uh, his, uh, his characteristics, which is his ability to uh, build a team. You know, he identifies Nehru, he identifies Patel, he identifies Bose. He identifies the great Indian feminist Kamala Devi Chattopadhyay. So, you know, he, he, it's not all about himself. Unlike many charismatic leaders, you know, so unlike, say, Johnson or Trump or Modi or Orban or Mao or whatever else, where it's, they are larger than life. I mean, they represent everything. Gandhi knows that to sustain a freedom movement, a reform movement in a country as large and diverse and complicated and divided as India, you need many people to work alongside. You know. And these are people quite often with very different views to him. And younger than him and in different parts of India. So when I talked earlier about his travels in different parts of India, wherever he goes, he's looking for bright young people to join him. And then he, and part of his correspondence is with these people, mentoring them, answering their queries, you know, uh, you know dealing with their anxieties. And there are many people, Rajagopalachari, who was a great statesman of 20th century India, Jayaprakash Narayan, an extraordinary social worker, who played a very important role in restoring democracy during the emergency in the 1970s. All these people are trained by Gandhi. I mean, I know no other major political leader who mentored so many remarkable figures. And I think that's an underappreciated aspect of his legacy. We, we, we ought to, to look at the, the war years. So war breaks out and the Viceroy doesn't consult the, the Indians at all about, about it. He declares war on behalf of India. What's Gandhi's response? And it's and it's not the same as Nehru and Jinnah's. And pe- everybody has a different response to to what happens here. The viceroy in 1939 was a doer, unimaginative, rather stupid, plodding Scotsman called Lilithgow. You know, even if he'd anyone else, I mean, he'd been born uh, very you know, close to where smart. I where I was born. <laughs> I mean, you, born? you 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 <laughs> very you, close. I don't know why you bring that up. <laughs> <It's> okay, <laughs> as a dour Scotsman myself, I, I feel a great sympathy for him. If Irwin had been there, or Butler, you know, R.A. Butler had been there, it would be more sensitive to Indian aspirations. Situation might have been different, but he was a diehard imperialist. He did not consult anyone, any Indian before uh, announcing India's support for the war. 
the Congress when Gandhi went and met him, the Congress went and met him and said, we will support the war and we will abandon our doctrinal commitment to non-violence on condition uh, that you assure us that we'll have freedom after the war ends. And he, of course, would not do that. And sadly, sad to say, he was backed up by Churchill in Britain, who was, for all his other great achievements, not someone during the war as a war leader, not someone who wanted to give up the empire. Right. So Gandhi then prevaricates, continues the conversation, and finally, after three years, launches his final struggle, the Quit India Movement. And what happens then? Well, lots and lots of people are arrested. It motivates huge numbers of young people, including women. There's uh, one of my favorite um, uh, activists of the Quit India Movement is a young student in Mumbai called Usha Mehta, who runs an underground radio. Uh, you know, after Gandhi's and Nehru are arrested, she runs an underground radio, which has some really moving uh, broadcasts. There's been a book on it recently. Uh, really moving broadcasts about India's place in the world and what India can teach the world, what India can learn from the world and so on. So uh, it's the last great struggle against the Raj, which clearly inspires hundreds of thousands of people. But it comes at a cost because Gandhi is and Nehru and Patel and all the Congress leaders are in prison from August 1942 onwards. And in this period, 42 to 45, uh, the British, of course, are very angry with Gandhi. They see him as having stabbed them in the back that while they are fighting for their own survival against the Germans, you know, Gandhi's launched this movement and they cultivate the Muslim League who are free to expand their constituency and their membership and take their message across all of northern and western India and eastern India while Gandhi is in prison. So in retrospect, it may have been a political mistake. It may have you know, enabled uh, political polarization because uh, essentially you offended the British by launching this movement in their darkest hour, as it were, and of course being jailed all this while while your political rivals uh, have an open field to cultivate uh, their constituency. Tell us about the assassination, Ram. What, what, what actually happens? Who does it? One of the differences between Gandhi and the politicians of today, which is also a difference in time and context, is that he had no security. Anyone could walk into his home, into his ashram, and have a conversation with him, or indeed, as it happened on 30th January, shoot him. So there's this young Hindu radical who is mentored by a politician called Savarkar, who has detested Gandhi from 1909, who has Savarkar is a very brilliant Marathi writer and intellectual who turns, who, it has, who becomes steadily more fanatical and, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, hates Muslims more and more and thinks of India as a Hindu country and sees Gandhi as a personal and ideological rival. One of his mentees, Godse, is inspired to kill Gandhi and goes with some colleagues to Delhi and walks into this prayer meeting and shoots him dead. Can you, I'm not sure by heart, remember the, the incredibly moving Nehru? Nehru goes yeah. uh, on, on radio and says, you know, the light has gone out of our lives. But he also says that the killer was a Hindu, which is very crucial because, uh, you know, it may be assumed that since Gandhi is a Hindu leader, he'll be killed by Muslim. And of course, he preaches for peace. And in many ways, Gandhi's death brings an end to the violence. And the Hindus are horrified that they've killed a great leader. And uh, I think uh, had Gandhi, even Gandhi could not have, however many fasts he held in different parts of India, could not have stemmed uh, 
the flow of writing, I think, as effectively as his death and his martyrdom. Ram, um, I mean, clearly your admiration for him is immense. And you've written these two beautiful volumes about his life. Um, one, the early part uh, where he's in South Africa, the other second part, the years that changed the world. There is one thing that comes up again and again, and I find it I find it problematic also. Um, you know, we talked about his love life, yeah. but there is also in his later years an eccentricity, you could call it, or some may call it something much more sinister, where he experiments or tries to push his own tolerance of celibacy by sleeping in the same bed with his niece, who is yeah. how old at the time? She's very young at the time. 18 or 19. Yeah. 18 or 19, and he's an old yeah. man in his 70s. Now, what do we do with that knowledge? Because I find, you know, I all of this, I'm carried along on the on the wave yeah. of, of all of this. No, and then I and then I hit this rock and yeah. it hurts. I mean, it, I don't I don't know what to do with that. It is hugely problematic. I mean, uh, the chapter in uh, you know, Gandhi's autobiography is called My Experiment with Truth. And the, the chapter on this experiment in my biography is called The Strangest Experiment, you know, because it's inexplicable. Uh, it's true that. Uh, he had this obsession with celibacy. Somewhere he felt that his failure to control his urges uh, was responsible for Hindus and Muslims being unable to control their passions. So it was kind of a colossal act of egotism that he felt his personal failure had led to a collective national failure. It's also true that his niece, Manu, was being pursued by a, was being sexually pursued by a man in the ashram, and she wanted to test her own celibacy. But these are not extenuating circumstances. You know, he was exercising his psychological power over his niece to make her participate in that experiment. And some of his closest associates, including a remarkable Bengali anthropologist called Nirmal Kumar Bose, uh, left him. And Bose's letter I quote in my biography says that this is wrong. I mean, what, what you're imposing on your niece is wrong and you should not be doing it. Now, you can't really explain or defend it. But he was an old, confused, complicated, uh, lonely man. His wife was dead. His closest friend, C.F. Andrews, was dead. Mahadev Desai was dead. He had no one to turn to for counsel and advice. And he, and he thought that somehow he, his, that control over celibacy for him was crucial to uh, showing himself as pure and uh, transparent and committed. So it's, it's a leap of faith that he made that can't be explained or justified. Uh, the only thing that can be said is that it was conducted in the open and you know, God knows what other people do or what other powerful people do, uh, which is hidden from us. But it is, it is, it is, I mean, it, I think it was essentially an act of vanity, of egotism. He felt because I have not controlled my passions, my fellow Indians have not been able to control their religious passions. Because I have not been able to control my sexual passions, my fellow Indians have uh, yielded to their religious passion. So if I can re-emphasize emphasize my personal control, maybe that will bring about peace. So it's, it, it's not very logical or rational, but I think that's probably the most plausible explanation. You've referred in, in some of your writings to him to being the most important figure in 300 years. If you look at the positive aspects of his legacy, uh, you know, one of course is non-violence. That if you have a dispute with your oppressor, a personal or individual or collective dispute. I think nonviolence is always a better, more effective, more morally uh, robust way of dealing with resisting oppression. The second is interfaith harmony, which I've talked about. I think that's crucial in today's world. 
A third is the transparency of his life. And the fourth, which we've not talked about really, uh, which would require a separate, uh, whole separate discussion, is this precocious environmentalism. You know, Gandhi's, in one of his most remarkable statements, which I quote in my biography, he says in 1938, God forbid that India take to industrialization in the manner of the West. If it does, it will strip the world bare like locusts. And I think India and China are stripping the world bare like locusts. So Gandhi advocated an attitude of respect, restraint, and responsibility towards nature. You know, live along with your non-human species, uh, limit your means, don't be greedy, don't be acquisitive. And also he had colleagues with him. For example, some colleagues who were really full-blooded environmentalists who were experimenting, uh, working in villages with water conservation, with biodiversity, with sustainable agriculture. So he was an early environmental prophet. And I think that's uh, increasingly an aspect of his legacy that we're beginning to recognize. Globally, though, I mean, many followers, Martin Luther King, Barack yes. Obama. Uh, yes. uh, of course. Talk, talk a yeah, little absolutely. about the uh, solidarity. The Lama, Nelson Mandela. Sure, sure. I mean, he's had, he's had many, many uh, uh, admirers. And I think in many ways, uh, to go back to something we said at the early uh, beginning of our conversation, even if India rejects him, he will live on outside. Professor Ramachandra Go, it's been an absolute pleasure. We're going to have to get you on again. Thank you. <laughs> it's just not long enough. Uh, but we might even so get you much. on your book, Rebels Against the Rod. That would be amazing, because that is an extraordinary <laughs> Thank you, thank you. Thank you, both of you. It's, it's, I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you. So that is all we have time for. Our enormous thanks to Ram Guga. Um, what are we doing next, William? I mean, I think I think it's just got to be. There's only one thing, isn't it? There's only I think, one. I think rock we have star to go. Subject. Where are we going? Well, I had in my inbox this morning uh, a uh, headline from the New York Post saying, uh, "This is the Koh-i-Noor, the diamond everyone is talking about," which mm. we, you and I have certainly been talking about for uh, for ten years now. But and we've been uh, banging uh, on about it forever. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we should bang on about it in this podcast. Well, okay, we promise we will do that. A lot of people are on us to do. When it when already next one because uh, this is the diamond which is in the queen consort's crown, last seen on the coffin of the queen mother because she was the last to wear it. It is a diamond which is said to carry a curse. No man can wear it without having his entire life reduced to ashes. That is the the curse supposedly attached to this diamond. And interestingly enough, in this country, Queen Victoria is the only reigning monarch who has worn it. But the the context uh, for this and, and why, in a sense, we are talking about it is that it has come for modern India to symbolize colonial loot. This small stone, which actually is no larger now uh, than the size of an egg, uh, is bears the entire weight of everything Indians feel was taken from them by imperialism and by colonialism, and they want it back. Oh, we're quite excited about talking about this. Can you tell? I mean, do join us. <laughs> we look forward to it. Till then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Drimple. <laughs> <laughs>